0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. Well, let me pray for us. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 11 today. Let me pray, though. Father, uh, thank you for our church family. Uh, thank you for just the ability to worship you. You've given us breath in our lungs. You've given us freedom in our country. That You've given us... Uh, just an opportunity to gather in your name in person and online. You've given us technology that we can connect with people uh, all over the world. And Father, you know exactly who will hear these words today. You know exactly what you want said. And I pray that you'd speak through me in this moment. I pray, God, that you would open each of our hearts to what your word has to say to us. Teach us something new. Remind us of something we've forgotten. Uh, Transform us to be like your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Have you ever had a situation before where you knew there was a problem but you didn't know the solution? I told some of you uh, about a month ago, maybe it was six weeks ago, I can't remember exactly, that I had an idea in my backyard. There were some trees that I wanted removed and I told you that I had this idea that if I climbed up on the tree, wasn't sure how to do that exactly with a ladder or bungees or whatever, uh, climb up to the top and I cut the top then I cut the middle then I cut the bottom. I'd have the tree cut down and I told you that my wife said to that plan, no. You're not doing that, and uh, we have a great church family here, amen? You're very kind uh, and very uh, thoughtful of your pastor. And so several of you came to me, and you all said the same thing. I know a guy. Everybody here knows a guy. And so you come to me and say, I got a guy, and you hand me a card. Here's the tree removal guy. I went to college with a guy. Here's a guy who does it on the side. Here's a guy who owns a company. Several of you gave me a guy. I called different people and got quotes. One of you sent a friend over that you went to college with, and I was standing in the backyard and I thought, I could probably run it by this guy. I said, here's what I was thinking. I told him my plan. He said, don't use a ladder, but otherwise, solid plan. And I thought, he is trying to sell me something, but maybe I wouldn't kill myself if I did this, but you'll be glad to know that I found a guy, and I called him, and he told me, gave me a good price, told me, uh, in 10 days, I'll be at your house to remove these trees. But the problem was he called me on the eighth day and I was already out of town. I was driving. It was last Saturday. I was driving to Wilson. I was an hour away and uh, my daughter had a soccer game down there and it was 7.30 in the morning and I got a call from him and he said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Is that okay? I was like, I mean, what am I going to do? You're going to take trees down. I'm just going to watch. That's probably totally fine. I said, what are you going to do? He said, we remove part of the fence, take some trees down. We'll be done. I said, all right, it's fine, which was great until I got a call about an hour later, in which the guy said, I think I broke your septic. There's water all over your backyard. And I, I was an hour away, and so I continued to watch the soccer game, and I came home three hours later, and he was right. There was water in my backyard. And then his crew started to dig around. So see, when I don't do it, there's still problems. This is just my life, all right? And so he starts digging around. There's stuff in the ground. If you don't know what a septic is, I just looked at him. and I said, can I flush my toilet? He says, I have a guy. I was like, you are the guy. It's like, the guy has a guy. Like, everybody's got a guy. (laughs) I did not know how to fix it, but I knew there was a problem. I think most of us in the world today, whether you're a Christian or not, know that there's problems in our world. If you look around, there's political division, racial division, anger, hostility. We seem to be growing further and further apart as a country. There's sin running rampant. You talk about sewage. Uh, we pump sewage into society, and we make millions of dollars on it every year, and call it entertainment. There's moral decay. There's significant issues in our relationships. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Depression at all-time high. Suicides at all-time high. You don't have to be a Christian to figure out there's a problem, right? And if you if you know the stats on churches. Like, even before, it's got to be worse post-pandemic. I don't think we have that all figured out. It's probably going to be a couple years before we know. Pre-pandemic, we closed 100 churches a year, or a week, I'm sorry, every year. 100 churches a week, every year. Okay, there are problems. You don't have to look around very far to see there are problems. One of my favorite pastors says this often. His name's Tony Evans. If what you see is all you see, you do not see all there is to see. There are issues happening behind those problems. Sometimes we forget, even as followers of Christ, that every year, there are millions of people who die and head into a Christless eternity. So that means by the most liberal estimates theologically, liberal meaning counting the most biggest swath of professing Christians possible, there are billions of people in our world headed for a Christless eternity. We know there's a problem. The issue is many of us don't know what to do, but here's what I want to tell you today. I know a guy. <laughs> His name is Jesus. He has a plan, and He's going to tell us about it in this passage of Scripture today. It's Colossians chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11 is where we're going to start. If you haven't been walking with us through Colossians, it's been interesting. This church is struggling. There's division. There's people being distracted from Jesus. Uh, There's doctrinal issues that are taking people away from Christ, the problem behind all the problems that many people aren't seeing. They can see the division. They can see the doctrinal error. They can see the moral issues of their day. What they can't see is that it's all taking them away from Christ. And so, what Paul does is he writes this book. And here's the outline that I haven't said to you, but hopefully if you've been with us each week, you've picked this up. The outline of the book is simply this. Here's who he is, and that means this is who you are. Now what do we do? He is, you are, what do we do? And so, chapter 1 was, He's the one who changes everything, Jesus. He took you from darkness into His kingdom. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the church. He is the one worthy of enduring faith. Amen? He made you alive in Christ. He made you free in Christ. He forgave you in Christ. That means that you are alive, that you are forgiven, that you are free, that when He died for you, and you identified with His death. Not only did He die for your sins, you could die to your sins. And so we saw last week, so be killing sin. We started chapter 3 last week, and we were talking about setting our minds on things above. That's the theme of chapter 3. Christ is the one who's above. So we set our minds on Christ. And then Paul starts to give an analogy. To put off something and to put on something. It's a clothing analogy. And he said, put off. It's an old way of life. Be killing sin. Today we're going to talk about what to put on, because that's God's plan for changing our world. It's time for a change. God's plan to change is to change you, to use you as a change agent in your world. Let's look at it. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 11. We'll only go through verse 14 today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here, there is not, and he's talking about the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay. So, that's relevant to our day, right? He's talking about here all this racial, social, financial, different divisions that are happening. And he says here, there's not Jew or Greek. Jews and Greeks hated each other, okay? It's not just one-sided. They both hated each other. Jews wouldn't eat uh, a meal that would be prepared by a Greek. Uh, Jews wouldn't go into the home of a Greek. They felt like it would make them unclean. If they left town, they went outside of Jerusalem. When they got back to Jerusalem, they'd dust off their sandals because of the unclean dirt they got on them. they clean off the robes. That's how much they hated each other. And it went both ways. In fact, there are prayers that have been found where Jews pray that Gentiles would not make it to heaven. It says, slave or free. There is not slave or free. Here you have, by the way, the seeds of what abolished slavery. Because here you have an undermining of this social division where people were treated like objects. It says there's not Scythian or barbarian. Uh, Scythians and barbarians were savages essentially if you were to culturally get into what was happening there Jewish historian Josephus says this, he says the Scythians delight in murdering people they're a little higher than wild beasts and so Paul's saying those divisions in the church, they're gone see just even outside the church, you've got we've got all something in common, we're all image bearers of God outside the church, we're all sinners separated from God But in the church, when you place your faith in Christ, there's not Scythian and barbarian, there's not black and white, there's not Jew and Gentile, there's not rich and poor, there's not working class and white collar, there's not all that. We're brothers and sisters in Christ because the the Bible actually says it's one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. We live on one mission. And so, here's what I want you in our church to know as a whole. Any real reconciliation that's going to happen racially is gospel-focused reconciliation. It's not just a social agenda, it's not about tearing apart families, it's not about, that's all, that's all satanic actually, but God's got a plan. There shouldn't be racism in the church, just to be really clear. There shouldn't be division in the church because there's unity in Christ, amen? So Paul says that, and then what he tells us to put on when we look at this, he's talking about putting on Christ. You're new in Christ, so put on Christ. Look what he says next. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts So here he gives this imagery of taking off an old way of life and putting on a new way of life. You've got a new uniform, a new outer representation of the inner reality of what's taken place in your life. The way he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is he lists what a bunch of people used to be like prior to their salvation, which the world is still like, and saying, "But now here's what's new about your identity." He says it like this: 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe we'll put it up on the screen, verses 9 through 11 it says, "Do not be deceived." Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the best part and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you've been changed. And because you've been changed, you should then live different. Changed people are transformed. Real transformation we've been talking about in this series happens at the heart level. And one of the things you've heard me say over this past year repeatedly, spiritual transformation in our lives leads to gospel saturation in the world around us. Our main point today from this passage, and we're going to walk back through the passage, but there's only one point is this, that God uses transform lives to transform our times. God uses changed people to change our world. Would be another way to say that. God uses the spiritual transformation in your life to bring gospel saturation in the world around you and God's placed each one of you in a specific sphere of influence to influence that world for Jesus Christ. And you think about what's happened in church history. Today there will be, I don't know the exact number because Baptists put numbers in there and they always inflate them. But millions of people gathered around the world celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're Baptists, so I can always make fun of them, by the way. Amen. Do you know how many people were in the first church? It's 120 in the book of Acts. That's a lot less people that are sitting in this room right now. And so across the globe, not just talking about online, but China, Russia, like there are believers who are going to gather today million, if not a billion people will gather in the name of Jesus Christ. It started with 120. Have you ever thought when you read Acts 1, Acts 2, who were the 120? Because we know about 10% of them. Guys named Peter and Jabes and John and Judas wasn't there, but there's a new guy to replace him and so it's like we know those guys, but who else was there? What about some of the people that Jesus impacted in the Gospels? Do you think Lazarus was there at that first church? raised from the dead. Do you think that any of Jesus was with prostitutes and sinful women? And do you think any of them that came to Him, washed His feet with their hair, or any of those ladies were there? Or lepers, a leper that was healed? I don't know exactly who was there, but I know that the people that were there have been transformed by Jesus Christ. And then you read the book of Acts, and what God does is He uses those people to then transform the world. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, he says this, talking about they're coming after some of the people that are on a mission trip, going around to spread the gospel. And says, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason, that was one of the Christians, and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. They're changing our world, and we like our pagan world, but God's got a different plan. And the plan was to use these people, their salt and light, to change their environment. And that's his plan for you. And the question is do you want to be one of those lives that are transformed that God uses to then transform our times? Because you're the plan. And the way that Paul talks about it here in this passage is the same way he's been talking about it as we've been going through this series. We've been seeing repeatedly that he tells us about our position in Christ, then he tells us our practice in Christ. We see these things that we supposedly believe, and if we believe them, then it changes the way we behave. They're identity markers, and the identity then changes because it has implications for our lives. And that's what he's done here. He did it as a theme of this book, so you know that it's not just this verse. Go up to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, that's your position. Seek the things that are above, that's your practice. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. That's the practice. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's your position. And so what he's been continually doing is showing us, here's your position, then this should be your practice. That's what Christian maturity looks like. And so what is he doing in Colossians chapter 3? We started reading verse 11. We saw there's no division in verse 11. Look at verse 12. Put on then, and then he talks about position. Position. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So, there's your position. Chosen, holy, and beloved. What does it mean to be chosen? It means this. If you're part of a church, and by that I mean not you're a member on some list. I don't mean you show up at a building or you tune in to a channel. What I mean is you've been made alive in Christ. If you've been made alive in Christ, you're part of the church, the universal church that's gathering all in these different local uh, manifestations around the world today. If you're part of the church, then that means that God chose you to be part of his family. So what does it mean to be chosen? Would it would be like if I randomly pick somebody today. I've got 20 bucks in my pocket. If I randomly pick somebody today to give some money to. So I'm going to pick somebody. And so I see you. I don't know. You might be like a millionaire young person, but what's your name? John. John. I'll give you 20 bucks today. Do not give it back to me after the service, all right? You can do anything you want with it, but don't do that. Because people sometimes, when I give money away, they come there like, here, you can have it back. It was just to illustrate. No, it's yours. You didn't do anything. I didn't pick before the service. Like, guy who sits in the second seat right there, I just saw you. I picked you. Now, you have to choose what to do with it. The blessing has been given to you, and you can decide to use it for yourself, give it to somebody else. You have to decide. But you've been chosen. The Bible says that we've been chosen as the church. It talks about Israel that way in the Old Testament. Listen to some of these verses. We'll put up on the screen here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, I've got it in my Bible if we don't have it on the screen. You just trust me, I guess. Or you could turn your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter seven and verse six. It says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. But it's talking to Israel to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he chose Israel. So, Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6 say this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. It's a whole kingdom, not just the Levites, a kingdom of priests. A priest, by the way, is a bridge builder between God and people and people and God. It says, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the peoples of Israel. That's the Old Testament. I'll tell you what the New Testament says to you as a church. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says that that you've been chosen, that you, follower of Christ, are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Oh, that sounds like familiar words, but that's the New Testament. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says that you've been chosen to be holy because you're loved. That's you as a follower of Christ. Hopefully that does something inside of you because what I'm talking about here, like some of you have heard since you were four years old, ask Jesus into your heart, Jesus come live into you, have Jesus inside of you. When you become a Christian, Jesus into you. But do you realize that's supernatural? Like, think about that for a second. For me to say to you that, I mean, I came to Christ when I was 18 years old. So, when I came to Christ at 18 years old, God came to live inside of me? Like, if you didn't hear that since you were five, would that not be like, wouldn't you be like, I don't know about that? That's kind of crazy. Like, what we're talking about here is supernatural. We're about to unpack a list of virtues. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to neuter this Passage and make it some moral behaviorism that we do as Christians. Like, go be nice. You're a Christian. Because what can happen with this passage is that we then walk through kindness and meekness and and patience and like, I just need to try a little bit harder to be patient. But that's not what's happening here. What's being said when it says that you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved, is saying that God decided to dwell in you, that God's presence is with you. When you go into the presence of others, you're bringing God's presence. If they're going to experience God's presence, here's how they're going to see it when you put on Christ. In fact, if you want to look and check me in the Bible on this, Colossians chapter 2 we already looked at, verse 9 says that in Christ the fullness of God dwelt, and He fills you. And so what we're talking about here is God's presence coming into different places through your presence because God is in you. Now, here's another problem with that. Sometimes when we talk about God's presence, we make it very sentimental as Christians. Somebody's going through a tough time, and we say, the Lord is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. That's true. But if you looked at God's presence through the Bible, if you look at God's presence in the Bible, I mean, Judges five. 5 when God's presence shows up, the earthquakes. From Mount Sinai, there's a reason nobody touched the mountain, because God was present on the mountain, and they didn't want to die. Aaron's got some sons. They get a brief mention in the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 10, I'm going to guess most of you haven't been reading Leviticus lately. Leviticus chapter 10, in your own reading a little later, verses 1 and 2, two guys with hard names come to Jesus with an unauthorized sacrifice. Many of us are like, as long as I'm sincere, well, read the Bible. They come with an unauthorized sacrifice, and there's a reason why we sing songs that say that God is a consuming fire. Read Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Those dudes died. God's presence is a serious thing. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was a place in the temple. It was the innermost part of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. And only one guy got to go there, the high priest, And he only got to go there on one day, the Day of Atonement. And he only got to go there if he offered the right sacrifices and he prayed the prayers and he burned incense so that it would blind his eyes partially to what was in the Holy of Holies, which is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of a special relationship God had with his chosen people, this holy nation, Israel. And there was a veil that separated so nobody else could go into the Holy of Holies. Do you know what happened at the cross of Christ The veil was torn. Well, that's right in there. You can give the Lord a hand for that. For sure. We can pause. Hey, I'm going on sabbatical. I'll preach all day. you guys want to clap, we can do that. Listen, when the veil was torn, you were given access to God. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you're given God. In fact, and I don't know what your denominational background is, but the Bible says that the moment of your salvation, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you received the Holy Spirit. So it's not like you trust Jesus and then you get the Holy Spirit later, you need more Holy Spirit at some point. No, you have, you've got God. How much of God do you need in you? You've got all God you need in you, you can quench the Holy Spirit, but you've got the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that He's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. God lives inside of you if you're a follower of Christ, amen? So the blessing He came to give you was better than giving you some money. That was just an object lesson. He gave you Himself. To live inside of you, his presence, so that then what would happen through you would be supernatural. So what we're talking about here when we talk about compassion, when we talk about meekness, we're not talking about just be more meek. We're talking about supernatural Holy Spirit empowered compassion. Supernatural Holy Spirit empowered patience. Supernatural Holy Spirit empowered meekness. And so look at it. We walk back through the passage. If we look at these characteristics, I'm not just making this stuff up. It comes right from the passage. Look at verses 12 and 13, and that's what I'm walking us back through. So if we're going to put on Christ as these chosen, holy, loved, that's your position, people, then what does the practice look like? It looks like supernatural compassion. Well, so wait, we're being commanded to feel something because compassion is a feeling, the Old King James actually translates compassion here as bowels of mercy. Bowels of mercy. Like that's because they oftentimes we talk about the heart as if it's central. They would talk about the bowels as if it was central. Like here's where you're this is the seat of your emotions. This is where all this comes from. And you know what compassion is? Compassion is when you see somebody else who's hurting and you hurt. It's not just sympathy. It's not, oh man, I hope they get better. It's it's, you actually feel some of their pain. And do you know that God has compassion for you? Everything that we read in this passage about compassion and meekness and kindness and all these things, you've experienced, if you're a Christian, from God. We see Jesus in the Gospels look out at people when he's teaching. There's a multitude there. He says he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. They were hurting and helpless. He felt compassion on them. In other words, he felt pain because of their not having a leader and being led by culture. It, it, the guy who writes this, Paul, has experienced a lot of pain. If we were doing a Bible study, we'd probably go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'd read the list where he's been flogged and beaten and stoned and shipwrecked. And he feels emotional pain of caring for the churches and, and being, having people come after him. And even brothers that have betrayed him and all the things that have happened in his life. Second Corinthians chapter 1 summarizes it well when it says, I had more than I could handle. But here's a guy that at his conversion, you can read in Acts chapter 9... He was fighting against Jesus. He hated Jesus. He thought that Jesus was anti-God, leading people away from God, and so he was persecuting the church. And Jesus comes to him in Acts chapter 9. You know what Jesus says to him? His name is Saul there. He hasn't had a life change yet, and oftentimes in the Bible, when God changes somebody's name, it's because he's changed their life. So he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? (laughs) Well, that's interesting because Jesus already died on the cross, risen, ascended to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, Paul's actually persecuting Christians. He's arresting them, throwing them in jail, so some of them will be killed. But Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Here's what I want you to know, believer, in Jesus Christ. And I don't need to know all of the pain you've experienced. God does. And when you've hurt, he hurts. He has compassion on you. You say, "Well, that's not me. Like I'm not I'm a thinker more than a feeler and and I'm just kind of I'm not really an emotional person." Let me remind you of verse 11. <laughs> Barbarians and Scythians. Really? They're savages. And he's saying they can experience supernatural compassion, so can you. Do you know why? Because you have God living inside of you. This is Holy Spirit-empowered supernatural compassion. If it's not natural to you, then maybe that will magnify the Lord even more in you. And then it flows into the next one, which is putting the compassion into action. It's called kindness. Now, to me, I'll be honest with you, um, God's way smarter than me, obviously. I don't think I need to even say that out loud. Uh, but when I read stuff like kindness, I think, God, really, you need to us to be nice. <laughs> really? Like, shouldn't we should, I mean, just be a good citizen being nice? Like, what does that have to do with being a Christian? And it, it seems kind of lame to me to talk about kindness. Until I read the Bible. And then in the Bible, I see that it's because of God's kindness, that's what led me to repentance. Because kindness is not niceness. Kindness is actually, some people define it as benevolence and action. Kindness is when you're responsive to other people's needs. And so, you don't just feel a pain, compassion, but you actually put that compassion into action. That's what kindness really is. That's what God was doing when He sent His Son, Jesus, to the cross for us is that we had a need we didn't even know about that we were separated from Him. And He's responding to that need by sending His Son so that we can come to know Him. It's His kindness that led us to repentance. But this is not natural to us. To any of us. I don't care about what your personality is. Maybe you're uh, easy demeanored, uh, just kind of always a compliant, child friendly person, but not this. This is supernatural compassion. And naturally, you think about your own needs. I was thinking this week uh, just about taking this time off. I'm going to be going on sabbatical next week, and different times I've had vacations, and what are we going to do as a family? And I was reminded uh, always one of the dreaded parts of vacation, like you think about the destination is the car trip to get there. (laughs) And I don't know if any of you have young children or not, uh, but I remember one time in our minivan, we had our kids, we were riding, and this is the most memorable part of the whole vacation, not the destination, it's the trip. Riding in the minivan is awful, just so you know. We have one child who just cried the whole time when they were a baby, and uh, just riding in the car. And so we're riding, and we had a miraculous moment. Everybody was getting along. It was a miracle. There was peace, there was quiet, Then at the time, this a little while ago, our two-year-old started to cry. Then our one-year-old heard the two-year-old crying, and so the one-year-old started to fuss, and I will remember, this is my favorite part of the whole vacation, the two-year-old said to the one-year-old, no, I'm crying. (laughs) It's like, you can't have needs, I have needs. What are you doing right now? See, that's what's natural to us. But what's supernatural is when we have a kindness that actually reveals the presence of God. That was one of the things that happened in the early church. You see, the church went beyond the Book of Acts. In the Book of Acts, there's actually not an ending because we are the Book of Acts. If you read the rest of the New Testament, it's letters to churches. That's what we're reading right now. This letter to this church in Colossae. We're reading a letter. If you read Ephesians, you're reading the letter to the church in Ephesus to the believers that are in Rome. It's these churches that God's using to transform the world. But Satan's coming against, and there's issues, and there's problems, and you put a bunch of sinners together, and they're still fighting and killing their sins, so there's issues. That's why these letters are written. And we're, it's still being us. We are, the book of Acts, still living this out. And so what you do is you start to look at church history and look at how did God use the church throughout history? Do you know that right now, we talk about problems in our society, there's a study that's been done, huge study, on what's happening within churches, evangelical churches right now, and it's estimated that in the next 30 years, we will have the single largest generational loss of young people that currently live in self-proclaiming Christian homes, abandoning, not church, the faith. They're walking away from Jesus. Do you know in the early church that they grew by astronomical amounts for the first several centuries, they were growing by 40% per decade. And we're talking about the single greatest loss? What happened to the early church? Well, they lived different lives. In fact, if you read church historians, we don't have time to go through all the quotes, I gave the guy some quotes, we don't have time today. Here's the reality. Basically what the church historian said, their holiness was tied to their evangelism and it changed the world. But do you know what they said about kindness? One historian, Eusebius, he said this, he's a Christian historian. He says, all day long, some of them, talking about the Christians, says during famine and war and difficult times at that time, they tended to the dying and to their burial, and so the Christians did the funerals for the pagans, and they cared for them at risk of their own lives. says countless numbers with no one to care for them, others gathered together. From all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed. They were hungry themselves. They were dying from starvation themselves, and they were giving food out to everybody else in the city. He said, well, that's, I mean, he's a Christian historian, so he's going to paint the Christians in a good light. At the same time period, there was an emperor named Julian who was a pagan. And we have in writing him saying to one of their priests, we need a revival of paganism, emulate the Christians and their kindness. Let me tell you what we don't need right now. More paganism. You know what we need? A revival of Christ-likeness. And God can use something that sounds so simple as kindness to change the world. Think about how social media would be different if Christians demonstrated supernatural kindness. I'm going to promise you something right now. And if you want to prove me wrong, I'm totally cool with that. I haven't done a study on this. No one's ever changed their mind based on your social media posts. But when people post on social media, they are demonstrating what's going on in their hearts. And so you get an opportunity to see their needs. What if you were responsive to those things rather than trying to argue and fight? See, kindness can change people's lives. I have a friend who uh, serves with one of our strategic partner ministries, the Raleigh Rescue Mission, and he goes down on the weekends and hands out food uh, about once a month. He's been doing it for about a decade now, a little bit over a decade now. He told me about one time they were down there uh, Moore Square area, we had a food truck down there. Had about 250 people show up, it was August, it was like 90 degrees outside, it was hot, people were fidgety, upset, things weren't going as fast as everybody wanted, they weren't expecting as many people that showed up. Uh, his wife actually got threatened by somebody that they were feeding, well physically threatened uh, while she was in the truck preparing food. He was getting frustrated and he said, I don't know why I'm doing this. He went to the leader and he said, I'm just gonna go down the street and pick up some garbage so I can keep my cool. Goes down the street, it starts to rain. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's a terrible day. Of course it's raining. And uh, he's picking up garbage and this guy walks up. He's dressed really nice, nice enough to notice that he's dressed really nice. And uh, starts talking to my friend. You know my friend asked the guy why he was in town. He was from Washington DC. He said, uh, how long have you actually been doing this? He says to my friend. He goes, At that point, about nine years. He says, You were the guy. He says, Two years ago, I was homeless. I was sitting on a curb down here. You guys were feeding people. And you came over and you handed me some gift cards from McDonald's. And you told me about a church here in town. I went to that church. I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I now live in D.C. Got a job. I got a son. I'm married. And I came back here because I wanted to thank you. Hmm. Kindness. Responsive to others' needs. Got to use that. It might not be that you're kind to somebody and uh, the globe changes, but you change their world and change a generation of that family, change their family tree, eventually change a generation of people. Kindness, supernatural kindness, supernatural compassion, supernatural, these characteristics keep just walking through them here in this passage, supernatural humility. Humility, just so you know, is not uh, when we have low self-esteem. It's not the people that make self-deprecating jokes all the time. Uh, Just so you know, that's a form of pride. Uh, There's people looking and thinking about themselves a lot. The Bible tells us about humility and uses Jesus as the example. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations say, your attitude should be the exact same as Jesus. Here's what it says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So it wasn't about his position, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The Bible says in multiple places actually, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God opposes the proud. So if you meet a proud person, then you've actually met somebody who's in a war with God. But he gives grace to the humble. If you humble yourself, he will exalt you. And that's the exact picture of what happens here with Jesus. He humbled himself. How do we see humility? Submission, not my will, but your will be done. Came became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you want to know if somebody's humble or not, are they submissive to God? Because that's what humility actually is. It's Mary in the Christmas story when the angel comes to her, tells her revolutionary news, and she says, may it be to me as you have said. My mind can't even fathom what you've just told me, but whatever you say, that's what I'll do. That's supernatural humility, which then leads to these connect with each other. It's like an internal, then an external, internal and external as you're walking through these. Supernatural humility, then supernatural meekness. Meekness is strength under control. It's when you have the ability to seek revenge when you've been wronged, and instead you bless. It's Joseph in the Old Testament. When he is sold into slavery, he's the first victim of human trafficking, and it's by the people that he should be able to trust more than anybody else, his ten brothers. They beat him, they throw him in a pit, they're planning on killing him, but then they said, no, let's make some money on this deal. They sell him into slavery, thinking never to be seen again. If you know the book of Genesis, then you know what happens. He rises to power, but then gets thrown into prison and then gets into higher power and then stands face-to-face before his brothers. And do you know how he can have supernatural meekness? Because supernatural meekness is a sign that you trust God. He does not say that what they did was okay. It was not. It was sin. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have been betrayed. That's sin. But God, and that's key in our faith, but God was not unaware of that sin, was not unaware of that pain. When you hurt, he hurt, but he uses that. And so what Joseph says is, you intended to harm me, that's your sin, but God intended to use it for the saving of many lives. And then he says, not only is he going to take care of the brothers, but he said, I'm going to take care of your little ones. That's how the ESV says it. I'm going to take care of your kids. I'm going to bless you. That's meekness. That's supernatural meekness. Supernatural meekness then lies connects into the next ones. It's forbearance. Here's a forbearance. You want a quick definition of forbearance? It's dealing and putting up with uh, um, annoying people. Uh, so it's just really true what it is. We all have it, right? There's all different things that annoy different ones of it. Supernatural patience. Here's you can test yourself in patience. I'm gonna give you a fake scenario. You pull up to a four-way stop. You're turning left. A dump truck comes in the other direction. They're gonna turn right. What do you do? When they start to crank their wheel, are you going to, I've done it, I'm sorry. If you're a dump truck driver and you're here today, I'm a sinner too, I'm sorry. Glad you're here. What would you do? You know what the Bible shows us? Is that fools rush in. But they don't wait on God. Could you imagine if the Israelites didn't take God's word when he said in Exodus chapter 14, uh, be still and I'll fight for you. Wait, that's right before he parts the Red Sea. Can you imagine if they charged at the Egyptians and fight? That wouldn't have gone well. You see guys like Abraham in Genesis chapter 16, he rushes ahead of God. God's promised him he's going to have a child. God hasn't delivered on the promise, so he decides he's going to help God out. He goes and he sleeps with a surrogate. Her name's Hagar. Every time you read news in the Middle East of the battle between the Israel, uh, Israel and the Palestinians, it goes back to Genesis chapter 16 and that sin that happened right there. There's been tension ever since. That's what two people groups were born out of because fools rush in. When you're patient, what you're actually demonstrating is a trust in God and a peace in your heart. That's the presence of God through you so other people can see it. Supernatural patience and forbearance and meekness. And I think this this last one summarizes all of them together. It's a supernatural forgiveness. We're all wronged. We already talked about how we've been forgiven in this series in Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. It says, you who are dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them, past, present, future, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the same as Pilate nailed king of the Jews above the head of Jesus, he's saying that what God was nailing to the cross was your sins, all of them. Past, present, and future. Nailed to the cross. The language that's used in Colossians chapter 2 is taking a papyrus and scraping it clean so it can be used again. That's what God did with your debt. Amen? But the Bible says then that we're to forgive others. So you got a complaint. Notice it says the word complaint in this passage. Verse 13, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, it doesn't say a sin even. Let's say you've been sinned against. Now some you have been sinned against. But if you just even have a complaint against someone else, it says that what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ is forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiving people forgive people. And in many of your instances, you can think of someone that you need to forgive, that would be supernatural. I read this week about a missionary, his name is Graham Staines. Uh, Graham served in India uh, for over 30 years working with lepers and so the lowest of the low in India and their caste society there and and helping these lepers and you would think that no one would want to hurt a guy like that but there were radical fundamentalist Hindus there that wanted to and literally what their desire was was to bury Christianity. They wanted it gone. One night Graham was sleeping in his jeep next to their church uh, with his two boys Philip and Timothy 10 years old, six years old. And a mob of 50 Hindus with axes came and burned the jeep. While they were in it, they couldn't get out of it because they were outside the car they tried. uh, Burned them alive. They died. It made national news. And the wife actually had some quotes that sent Christianity on fire through India. Because she forgave. Listen to what the wife said to the news when she was asked about the murder of her husband and her two sons. She says, I only have one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry. And by the way, she stayed there and continued the ministry. She didn't leave. I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. This is days after her husband was burned to death. She had a 13-year-old daughter, uh, Esther. Esther said this. I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. That's meekness, by the way. Not seeking revenge. Bless. Patience, humility. Kindness. Compassion. I feel for your needs. I want to respond to your needs. Even though you've done to me. So what happened conservative estimates, hundreds of people came to Christ. There's probably actually thousands that came to Christ through India for this. There are stories that you can continue to read of people coming to Christ. One pastor tells a story that he was going door to door handing out little gospel booklets to talk about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, have your sins forgiven. He's handing these out to different homes. He went to this one home. and This Hindu man answers the door and says, is this the Jesus of Gladys, the woman whose husband was killed? And the pastor said, Yes. And he goes, I want that Jesus. A supernatural forgiveness. Listen, we got problems in our world, church, but I know a guy. His name's Jesus. He can forgive you of your sins, transform you, come to live inside of you, and then empower you to do the very things he commands you to do in the Bible. Let's ask him to do that. Father, we come before you today in need of. Different needs by different people that are represented online in this room around the globe right now. There are people that need your son Jesus Christ to be their savior. They don't need moral change. They don't need to be nicer. They don't need to be more kind and patient. They need you. They need you to revolutionize every part of their life. And God, will you save them right now? Will you save those who need saving, Father? I pray right now you'd bring a deep conviction on the hearts of those who don't know you, that are maybe playing Christianity or that are maybe hearing about you for the first time today. God, will you please transform them in this moment? And I pray for my brothers and sisters that do know you, that you deal with sin in our lives. You deal with the sin of impatience and lack of kindness and lack of compassion. Sometimes just the anger and the hardness we have for people that we disagree with. Father, you want to transform that, that, people that even if we just have a complaint, they haven't even wronged us, a complaint that we would forgive and that that would be put on display and that your presence will be brought into the platforms that you've given us all throughout this city and all around the world. God, I pray for revival. I pray for revival in my heart. I pray for revival in the hearts of our church. I pray for revival in this city. I pray for revival in other churches in this city. There are so many that love you and want to serve you. God, I pray you do something special here in Raleigh-Durham that we become a city on a hill that would transform this world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.